Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Oh, happy Father's Day. Thank you. Was that you that said that? Oh, thanks, Preston. Happy Father's Day. I wanted to show you. Sorry. Can I show you what, what my kids gave me for Father's Day? So cute. So cute. All right, so first we have books that they wrote about me and them. I know. Then... I mean, come on. This is, you know, it's, it, it may not be, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is this, oh, this side's better. This beautiful Star Wars shirt. And then they said, those were the gifts, but this was just for fun, Daddy. And they got me this. This is all the rage. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not going to put it on, but let's see if I can. When you talk, it makes the sound, the Chewbacca sound. I, no, I can't. It's for kids. My, my noggin is, my huge head is too big. So, it's like Sputnik. How y'all doing? Um... Bear with me today, um, our printer died, and so I'm using what may be the biggest tablet the world has ever seen. Nick is letting me borrow it. It's just barely bigger than our living room TV, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll do okay. But I, I don't usually preach from one of these, so bear with me. If, I, if you see me going like this a lot, it's because I'm lost. Um, but uh, we are in the middle of a series called Fixer Upper, and we have been having a great time in the book of Nehemiah, and it's been a fantastic series, and we are continuing in the Fixer Upper series today, but I wanted to start with a little pop quiz. I'm going to put some phrases, not yet, some phrases on the, the screen. I want you to look at them. And if you can figure out what these words, phrases, or sentences have in common, I want you to yell out, yay! All right, let's, everyone practice. Yay. All right, there you go. Now, all right, all right, we're ready, Robin. Dennis and Edna sinned. Cain, a maniac. Never odd or even. Anyone? What if I would have put up there, seriously? <laughs> Yay? Yes. What if I would have put race car up there or level? Would that have helped you out? These are all palindromes, which means you can read them forwards or you can read them backwards. Are we not drawn onward? We few drawn onward to a new era. Or are we not drawn onward? We few drawn onward to new era. They're palindromes. Forwards, backwards, they send the same message. And did you get that even your response, yay, was a palindrome? <laughs> Grammatical wordplay, just for you. Um, palindrome, yeah, hey, don't judge. <laughs> wow. Yes, Mike just wowed me um, sarcastically with the palindrome. So, thank you, Mike, and uh, good night. No, uh, <laughs> no, they're all palindromes, and we're going to come back to this a little later on, but um, I just wanted to start off with a little something, get your brain going. We, uh, I've been given the task of covering Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6, so we have three chapters that we want to cover and not a lot of time. So I'm, I figured there's no way we could cover the micro of all of this. There are so many little components that we could talk about. There are probably 10 sermons that could be in those three chapters. And so 
rather than focusing on the micro of each specific thing, I think maybe it's best if we were to step back and look at the big picture, the macro of all three chapters, because um, scholars lump them together for a reason, and so I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking big picture about Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6. And basically, as a review, uh, the first week Matt talked about Nehemiah 1, in case you weren't here. Nehemiah 1, we have the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, and he receives news that troubles him. He finds out that Jerusalem is not in good shape. Um, The Persian king has allowed many Jewish people to return, and he just assumes things are going well. He receives word from his brothers that return, things are not good. The wall's been destroyed and our people have been disgraced. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. So much so that in our second week in chapters 2 and 3, we talked about the fact that the king said, what's going on, Nehemiah? Why are you so upset? He tells them, and the king of Persia gives him permission to go back and rebuild a wall that had been destroyed. And so we have Nehemiah going back, surveying the land, kind of getting a feel for things, gathering the troops, giving them probably what will go down as one of the greatest unknown motivational speeches ever. We don't know what he said, but clearly it was something because he rallied them to rebuild a wall. And so that's chapter two, that's chapter three. And chapter three, honestly, a lot of scholars say may be one of the best chapters in the Bible to give a glimpse of what the church is supposed to look like. You have a group of individuals coming together under a godly vision for a greater good, and they do something far beyond what they could ever do on their own. They did together. And a lot of scholars say that's exactly what the church is called to be. So we have chapter 2, we have chapter 3, then we get to chapter 4, 5, and 6. Now, when you have success, um, by the time we get to chapter 4, the wall is about halfway built. Success is happening. Anytime you have success, there is sure to be opposition. Can you agree with me on that? It seems like success breeds opposition. Things are going well, and then there's always some sort of resistance. We see that in Fixer Upper every episode. They budget $100,000 because they have exactly $100,000 to spend, and they get about three weeks into the project, and what happens? Boom. Oh, we're going to need to do this also, and that's another $4,000 unexpected opposition. So our Fixer Upper series goes perfectly well with what's going on, and here we have in Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6, some opposition that comes against Nehemiah and his people. And so the whole question this morning is, how do you react when oppositions arise? How do you respond? Because we're all going to be faced with opposition. So how do we respond when these trials come? And Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6 are going to give us a clue of how he responded. And I think how God may have how God may want us to respond when those things happen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly dive in, and we're going to hit 47 oppositions and go through each one and talk about what happened and what was the response. Nobody said anything to the 47. Awesome. Does that mean I really can take my time? There there are not that many, but there are five things that happened in those three chapters, and I want to take a look at each of those. Now, the first thing... uh, that happened. The first opposition that happened to him um, was what um, I'd call psychological opposition. And we find that at the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read um, Nehemiah 4.1. Now, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan officers, What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Now, stopping right there, can you hear it? Poor, feeble, in captivity. He's feeding on this insecurity that the Jewish people already have. Yeah, they are feeble. They're being oppressed. They're under Persian rule. They are poor. 
and he feeds into this psychological, he takes, it's like he takes the rod and just kind of pokes at it. These poor, feeble Jews. What do they think they can do? And he uses their fears against them. And then he says, do they think they can rebuild the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? And a lot of scholars say that basically that sentence is, is pretty much saying, forgetting the Jews, let's talk about their God. I mean, their God couldn't even save them from their enemies. Is their God really going to help them build the wall himself? I mean, come on. This clearly is not a strong God if he can't protect them from the Persians. Or do they actually think they can make something of stone from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, oh, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along top it, along the top of, of it. Now, these last two were extreme exaggerations. I mean, clearly the wall would not be toppled if a fox walked upon it. And clearly they were exaggerating. Yes, the walls had been broken, but they weren't destroyed. They'd just been toppled. And so Sanballat and Tobiah are using these psychological methods just to, just to get under their skin, just to give them that bit of doubt, just to give them that insecurity, just that little bit, can I really do this? I know God's called me to it, but can I really do it? And here we see the beginning of many great responses. Nehemiah, does, Nehemiah is a man of prediction. He does what he always does. The first thing Nehemiah does is he prays. And we see that all throughout Nehemiah. If you look at Nehemiah 1.4, it says this, When I heard this, um, he's talking about when he heard about Jerusalem in Nehemiah 1.4. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. And then in chapter 2, when he's before the king, the king asks, well, how can I help you? I've heard that you're upset. You've told me why. How can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. Prayer just seems to be his automatic default. And then in chapter verse 4 we see in Nehemiah then I prayed which leads me to my first question for us what's your first response when opposition comes your way and I'll tell you I've struggled a lot with this message this week because I don't necessarily find prayer always being my first go-to response. It's not always my knee-jerk reaction. It is sometimes, and I wish it were all the time, but I mean, let's be honest. So what's your typical first response? Is it anger? Is it disappointment? Is it to counterattack or to, not, to deny what's being said against you? Do you try to justify your position when somebody comes against you, what, what's your default response? And a follow-up question is, do you think it works as well as prayer would work if that were your first response? I mean, I sit there and I think, if I were to begin all of my responses with prayer, would my relationships be better? Would my marriage be better? Would, would my confrontations with my coworkers be better? Would a lot of the struggles that I have, would they be better if I started everything with prayer? And that's what Nehemiah did. Prayer was always his first response. And I would encourage you and tell you that maybe it's supposed to be ours too. So let's move on. The second opposition happens. We have the psychological opposition. The next opposition would be physical opposition, and we see this happening. It's in one of those verses that you read through it, and honestly, I just keep going because it's a bunch of names of people and places that I don't know about. But if we were to look at the geography, we would see that this is a physical confrontation that's happening. Now, if you look over here, I don't know if you can see it, but basically, chapter 4 is saying this. Actually, let me just read it. Sorry, guys. 
But then Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs. Now, Sanballat is a Samaritan just north of what's happening. Tobiah is Arab. Now, you can't see it that well, but you see that dotted line down there? To the far east and all below. So north and south we've got coming against the people of Israel. As well as the Ammonites, which Ammon is directly to the east, and the Ashdodites, which Ashdod is directly, directly to the west. They heard that the work was going ahead and the gaps of the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, and they were furious. So what happens is, from all sides, they're getting this pressure, this physical threat that something is coming. This isn't just a psychological thing anymore. They're hearing reports. They're having their people say, hey, we've heard scouts tell us that they are preparing to do something. Now, they're not going to come out in a full-on war because to attack the Jewish people that are rebuilding a a wall that the king gave them permission to do is full-on war against King Artaxerxes. So they're not going to do that. They're going to be much more subtle. It's these little skirmishes, these little annoyances. Let's, Let's bother them. Let's maybe pick off one or two of the people, retreat. Then we can deny that it was us. I mean, if we go full-on war, we're in trouble. But if we just have these little skirmishes, these little distractions, these little physical attacks, these little... Then maybe we can distract them enough to where they won't finish building the wall. And so we have these crazy people trying to just annoy the people of God and distract them from their work. You ever feel that way? Have you ever made a decision that you feel like is really of God and then you just get these little, not full-on attacks, just distractions, these little annoyances, these little problems. It's, man, life was going so well and I made this decision for God and now this is falling apart. And now this is, you know, giving me problems. Now this relationship is strained. It's these little attacks that come at us from all sides. And so what's Nehemiah's response? His his response is prayer and precaution. And basically, it's the equivalent of the World War II English slogan, keep calm and carry on. It's, okay, we're, we're having these threats of attacks. We are going to pray, and we're going to communicate with God, And then we are going to prepare. We are going to take precautions. We do not want to be caught unaware. So he talks about how um, in Nehemiah 4.13, it says this, So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas, and I stationed people around to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Now, if you know military, which I clearly do not know much, but I know enough, I've read, um, Swords are for close combat. They are for, I'm here, you're there, close combat. Spears are longer, and you've got a little more distance. You've got a little more safety buffer, right? Because you've got a spear. You've got a bigger circle of protection. The bows, they say, could be launched up to 700 yards. Now, not with great accuracy, but even, they said, at three to 400 yards, a skilled bowsman could hit its target. And do you see what Nehemiah is doing? He's saying, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take precautions. We are going to guard ourselves, and we're going to guard those things around us. And we're going to guard so far out that the enemy can't even get close to us because we are taking precautions to make sure that we are not distracted from the work of God. And so they have this circle effect, and they, Nehemiah says, we are not going to be distracted, and we're not even going to let the distraction get close to us. We are going to keep it as far away as possible. And my mind immediately, when I was reading this, went to Ephesians. And so let me flip there real fast. Ephesians 6. I love what Paul says about the armor which I think fits well with this precautionary um, warning for Nehemiah. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies 
of the devil. But we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. So stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I love how Paul closes it. He, he would think Nehemiah was the co-writer. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all the believers everywhere. And I feel like that verse 18 is very much what Nehemiah is saying in Nehemiah 4, verses 10 through 17. He's saying, stay alert pray in all things, and be prepared. Don't wait for the enemy to be at your side before you take precaution. Be prepared and give yourself these boundaries and these buffers so that you are ready to defend against the enemy. So we have this opposition that's physical, we have this opposition that's psychological, and then we get to this third opposition. Now, those two are external. The third opposition is internal. We've got this internal problem that's happening, and it's discouragement. So what's happening at this point is the psychological warfare is wearing them down slightly. The physical threat is wearing them down even more. Nehemiah is telling them, be strong. But then they get to this point where the, it says the wall was half built, and they started to get discouraged. They were halfway finished. And the Bible says they started to say, can we really do this? I mean, this wall is huge. I mean, this is a big task. I mean, we're enslaved people, and we're being asked to rebuild a wall. I mean, is this something we can even do? And they become discouraged. And I find that discouragement oftentimes can paralyze us and keep us from doing anything. I find a lot of times when I'm discouraged, the only thing I want to do is crawl up in a ball and just wait for things to get better. And that's not really what Nehemiah is calling us to do. This discouragement reminds me, um, I know that my physique does not look it, but I run half marathons, and uh, <laughs> slow half marathons, but I run them, walk them, crawl across the line sometimes, but I finish them. I've done four of them in the past decade, and all four times, the exact same thing has happened. Here's basically how it goes. The first four miles, I'm trucking. I'm feeling good. I mean, I've got this. I've trained, I've run, I've done much more than four miles. Not a big deal. Then I get to miles five and six every time, and I start to think, okay, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, but... I'm getting tired. I mean, it's mile five, mile six. I mean, this, this is not as easy as one would think it would be. This is not my normal thing. And then I get to mile seven, and it's always happened at mile seven. I start to think, I'm only halfway through. This is horrible. <laughs> what was I thinking why did I ever think I could do that? And I start to think, man, I felt this good at mile one. I felt this good at mile four. I feel this good at mile seven, which means basically I'm done by mile eight and a half. I'm just giving up. If I keep going on the same psychological path that I'm going on. And every time um, I follow a guy named Jeff Galloway, he, he has run hundreds of marathons, and he warns against this, and he says, all you have to do is remember, you don't have to worry about mile nine right now. The 
only thing you have to do is take immediate action and take one more step. The next step is the only one that matters to you right now. Miles 8, 9, 10, they're going to have enough trouble on their own. Let's worry about this one. Let's worry about this next step. Can you take this next step? Good. Now let's move on to the next one. And it's so weird because I, I, I just start thinking, it's almost like Dory, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. I'm just like, just a few more steps. Okay. And he gives this rubber band technique where you, you see someone in the distance and you're like, all right, I'm going to psychologically throw a rubber band around them and I may slow down a little bit, but eventually I'm going to get that second wind and I'm going to catch up and that rubber band's going to pull me. And I know that it's not there. I know there is no rubber band. But it's amazing how you think that way and it really helps you. And your outlook changes when your, your mental um, status changes. And so I just do one step, one step, one step. And before I know it, I'm at, my, I'm at mile 10 and mile 11. And then I'm like, oh my word, where'd the time go? This is awesome. I've only got two miles left. I can do two miles. I've already done that five times. I can do it one more time. <laughs> I know, it doesn't make sense, does it, George? <laughs> but, but I usually find that my last two miles are some of my strongest miles because I've gone through the discouragements. I've persisted through it. I've kept going. And Nehemiah says, the next step is prayer and action. We're going to pray. We're going to pray and we're going to be precautious. But we're going to pray and we're going to act. We are not stationary people in this thing. We are going to pray. And so he, he really, he pulls on their emotions and he says, you're going to fight. You're going to fight for your kids, for your brothers, for your wife. Nehemiah 14, 14. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah basically is giving them this big pep talk saying, you are doing this for something bigger than you. Don't lose sight of that. And then, if that doesn't work, remember this. God is fighting for you. The battle's not even yours. God is fighting for you. And he tells them, we're going to have guards. We're going to have a trumpeter. And when you hear the trumpet, I want you to come to wherever the trumpet's blowing because that's where the trouble is. And then he says, I want you to come and watch the, war, watch the Lord fight for you. And immediately their minds would have gone back to stories like Gideon, where he had 22,000 and God whittled it down to 300 men that he took and defeated the Midianites. And they blew the horn and they said, for the Lord and for Gideon, and God fought the battle for them. And so Nehemiah is saying, this isn't even your battle. Come on, dudes. We're going to pray, we're going to prepare, and we are going to act, but remember whose battle this is. This is God's plan. This is God's vision. God will do the fighting for you. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do anything because we understand very clearly that we are called to be God's hands and feet. So this story shifts slightly in our now and day because we we're not called to just, okay, God, fight for me. Let me know when you're done. A little longer? All right, keep fighting. Just let me know. No, no, we are called to pray and we are called to act. And what does that look like? Um, I, I kept thinking this week about Mother Teresa. And there's a great movie. It's on Netflix called The Letters. Um, highly recommend it. It is this letter correspondence between Mother Teresa and her spiritual leader, and it's five decades of letters of her talking about the discouragement and isolation and loneliness she feels. She felt, but she said, but then I look at the poor, and I look at those in need, and how can I help, how can I not do something and so what does it look like to pray and act? Well, I, I think it looks like you open your eyes. What's the hurt in front of you? What's the need in front of you? What do you see that's not right in this world, that doesn't line up with the kingdom of God? 
and then do something. We are called to be the hands and feet of God. Bill, Bill Heibel says we are the agents of reconciliation. There is no plan B. It's us. So pray and then act. Do something. We're almost through, guys. I noticed as I was preparing, each one I feel like is getting harder and harder. I can pray. But then pray and prepare, well, that requires a little more of me. And then pray and prepare and act. Each step is getting a little harder, and I think that's deliberate. Um, so let's look at opposition number four. Opposition four is the whole chapter of chapter five. And basically, I'm going to give you a very broad, broad strokes. Basically, it starts this way. About that time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. Chapter 5, basically, we see exploitation and oppression taking place. Now, here's the thing. They are under Persian rule. They are exiled they are captives. Even the ones that are allowed to return to Jerusalem are still not free. And yet, it's not the Persians that are oppressing them. It's, it's not them that's doing it. The word cry, when it says they raised a cry of protest, it's the same word that's used in Exodus 3. When God's talking to Moses and he says, I've heard the cries of my people, how they are being oppressed. And so we have these people coming to Nehemiah and they're saying, Nehemiah, we are being oppressed by our own people. Now, there are lots of reasons why. Um, the Bible talks about a famine and, and a couple of other, other things. But the short answer for why they're being oppressed is because the people were not following the word of God, the laws of God. They were not following the Torah. They were lending people things and then charging extreme interest, which they knew not to do. They were mortgaging people's lives to the place where their sons and daughters were being sold into slavery to pay for what was needed. And then after seven years, when they're supposed to be released and all debts are supposed to be forgiven, that's not happening. And so the Jewish people are their own worst enemy. It's like the enemy is me. And Nehemiah, I, this is what I love. Nehemiah's response. This is the first place, the only place in these three chapters where the work on the wall stops. This is the only place. No other time is there a distraction like this when God's people are being oppressed and treated unjustly. And he's like, why are we even building this wall? What good is it to have a wall when we're still being oppressed by each other inside the walls? And so I love what he does. He basically says, you've got to change. You nobles, you leaders, you people that are doing this, you know this is wrong. This is not what the Torah says. This is not what the book says. This is not what our God would do. You know it. You need to change. And here's what I love. They say, okay, we'll change. And what does Nehemiah immediately do? You're going to change? Yeah, we're going to change. Great. Hold on. Priests? He calls in the priests and makes them swear an oath right then and there. It's like he's saying, I'm not even giving you time to go home and think about it, to second guess, to, to let the embarrassment die down. We're going to fix this right now. And they take an oath. And then on top of that, he becomes the prophet and he shakes off his robe and he says, and if you don't do everything that you've said and that you've sworn in front of the priest, may God do this to you. May he shake your land and your family and everything off of you if you don't do what you said you will do. 
Harsh words. See, he knew that God would not allow them to continue to disregard his known laws while they were asking for God's blessing. So he called them to this biblical responsibility. He said, you know what our God says. Now do it. And I wonder, this is where one of the places that really stuck me. God will not allow us to continue to disregard his known laws while asking for his blessing. I just want to let that sink in for a second. God will not allow us to continue to disregard his laws while asking for his blessings. Last opposition, and then we're done. Chapter 6. Basically, the mentality is this. Well, if you can't kill the message, kill the messenger. Easy enough. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and some of their cronies decide, let's get Nehemiah to come out. Let's tell him we want to meet with him. So they send him a letter. We want to meet with you. Um, it was, you know, you know, if you look on the map, it's about seven miles outside the gate. It's far enough away that it would definitely cause stop from working on the wall because you're going out this far to meet these people. And I love what Nehemiah says. In uh, chapter 6, verse 3, he says, he's like, I, I could just see him like, what are you doing? You know, he's like, I'm engaged in a great work. I can't come. It's like, you want me to meet with you? I'm doing something here. I love it. it, it he remembers who he is. Now, it would have been very easy for him to have pride and say, ooh, they see we're almost done. I'm the foreman. They see that, you know, I'm getting it done. It's time to make nice. And, you know, okay, well, if we can't keep it from building the wall, let's at least be friends. It would have been very easy for Nehemiah to let pride get in his way. But he remembers who he is. I'm just a servant doing the Lord's work. And I will not let anything distract me from finishing God's work. And he says, I can't do it. I'm doing a great thing. Something big is happening here. God is doing something, and I wouldn't want to miss it. I can't do it. So then they send Shemaiah, a prophet. And Shemaiah says, Nehemiah, they're coming for you. They're coming tonight. They're going to kill you tonight. Here's what you need to do. You need to go to the temple, and you'll be safe, and I'll meet you there, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. And here's the thing. Right then and there, Nehemiah, red flag, red flag. Things started going up. Because even though Shemaiah was a prophet, we find out that he had been bought off by Sanballat and Tobiah, and he was giving him bad information. And Nehemiah knew it. That's what I love. He knew it. How did he know it? I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. He knew it because of this. They're coming to kill you. Meet me in the temple. Now, because Nehemiah knew God's word, he knew that this whole idea of sanctuary, you know, like in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, go to the, go to the church, you'll be safe. This was a pagan ritual. This was not a Jewish thing. You were not granted safety and immunity just because you went to the temple of God. Now, they did have provisions. The, um, the Bible talks about cities that were safe houses, but the temple was not one of them. And because Nehemiah knew the word of God, he knew that he was being lied to, and they were trying to deceive him. And on top of that, he also knew he is not the person to enter the temple. All it takes is a little bit of history lesson, and he would have remembered that King Uzziah about 100 years earlier, said, I'm going to go into the temple. I don't need you priests. I'm going to make my own sacrifices for God. I'm, I'm God's king. I'll take care of it. 
And the priest says, what are you doing in here? This isn't your place. Immediately, the temple is rent, and light strikes Uzziah, and he is struck instantly with leprosy. Because Nehemiah knew God, because he knew his plan, because he knew the way God works, he was able to see these red flags and see them for what they were, which is nothing but tricks to try to pull him down. It reminds me of, um, you know when you go to the beach? First time I went to the beach, I was like in seventh grade. It was in Florida. And you see those flags that are flying? And I was like, hey, cool, flags. What's going on? Is that a carnival? And my buddies were like, you're an idiot. No. Those tell you about the water. You know, if, it, if it's purple, you know that there's dangerous marine life. Don't go out there. If it's a double red flag, the water's dangerous. It's, the beach is closed. I didn't know that because I wasn't familiar with those rules. But anyone who was familiar would know exactly what those rules meant and how they are to proceed. And Nehemiah is saying the same thing with us. If you want to know how to rise above the oppression, the opposition, you've got to know the word. You've got to know what God says. You've got to know his plan, not only for you, but his plan for humanity. You've got to understand what he says, and only then will you understand truth from lies, truth from convenience, truth from, well, everyone else is doing it, so it must be okay. The word of God is our ultimate authority where we come to that, where we come to see what do you have for me, God? How can I learn? Nehemiah knew the signs, so he knew how to respond. We're called to the same thing. So, we have this Nehemiah that wouldn't be distracted. We have this, um, this cycle. And I'm going to skip that screen, Robin. Let's go, let's go to the, the flatline screen. Um, sorry, things we do on the fly when I don't have paper in front of me. So here's the deal. We started off the service with palindromes. Same way, same way. It works both ways. This is Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6 in a nutshell. We're called to prayer. Not only that, we're called to pray and we're called to prepare. We're called to have this precaution and be alert. Not only that, we're called to action. We're called to be God's hands and feet, his people in this world. Not only that, we're called to biblical action and responsibility. We know the way that God has called us to live. Not only that, we're called to know God's word, his will, and his plan in our lives. But Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6 is also a sort of palindrome because the more we know God's will and his word, the more that drives us to want to understand God better and this biblical responsibility. I, I want to know God's will more, so I'm driven to his word. And the more I understand his will, the more I know his word, the more it drives me to act. I know what God wants. I know what his plan is. I know what his kingdom is supposed to look like. He's written it down and told me. I'm called to act. I'm called to bring his kingdom. And because I'm doing that, I know that there will be opposition and I need to be prepared. I've got to guard myself even more. I've got to be more in the word. I've got to be more attuned to God's will because there will be opposition. So I've got to have precautionary measures and everything, everything, everything is done in prayer, through prayer, and by the power of prayer. So we've got this palindrome. It doesn't matter where you are, and, and you may be anywhere. Maybe you, you're here today and you don't know anything about God. And you want to, you just don't. I'd suggest that, that there's a place for you on the palindrome. And we'd love to help you. We can get you in contact with the creator of the universe. The God that juggles comments. We know him. 
we can introduce you. Maybe you say, well, I know God, but I'm not really guarding myself. You know, I mean, I'm a good Christian guy, but if the truth be told, I'm letting myself get closer to the fire than I need to more times than not. Or maybe you say, I know what God wants me to do, but a lot of times I'm paralyzed, I'm frozen. Or another thing is time. You know, time is the enemy. Have you ever had a moment with God and you know it's God? And, well, what's the next step? I don't know, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to pray about it. And a week goes by and two weeks goes by and all of a sudden that passion that was genuinely there, all of a sudden time erodes the passion. So maybe you say, I need to act. It's time to act now. Maybe you say, man, I need some biblical accountability. I haven't been been in a fight club, the men's fight club, because I I don't want to air out my dirty laundry. I don't want people to know what my problems are. You're only going to go so far on this scale until you surrender to all of it. Maybe, maybe you're at this last step. Man, I just want to know the Word of God. I want to know Him more. Wherever you are, I, I think the response, and Lisa is going to come up, the response for us today has to be prayer. And So I want to give us, not a, not, we're not going to take a lengthy amount of time, but I want to give you time to pray. You can pray in your seats. Um, I found that the altar is a great place to come to pray. It kind of puts me in a posture of remembering my place. Um, But wherever you are on this line, chances are you could move forward, whether it's forward this way or forward this way. So as Lisa plays... I want us to pray. I love this quote by Martin Luther. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer has to be our first step, our main step. Everything we do has to be bathed in prayer. Oswald Chambers says, we tend to use prayer as a last resort. God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else to do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Um, In a different place, Chambers says, prayer is not preparation for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so, I just want to give you time. I'm going to be down here praying because I need to move on the scale as well. So we're just going to take a few minutes, let you pray, and then we're going to close the service. So don't miss this opportunity. Time, um, good things don't always come to those who wait. If you feel God calling you, I encourage you to respond now. So we'll just take a few moments, and then the band's going to come up, and we'll just sing one more chorus.
saint is the one, the person who can will the one thing. So we're gonna we're gonna let these people continue to pray. My prayer for you this week is that you will be able to will. Thank you.